Church, I'm thankful for you. God has made you one of the many blessings that he's placed in my life. And I don't mean that as just a group. As I look out and I see many people, some I'm getting to know and some I've known a long time. I am thankful for you. Uh, As we approach Thanksgiving, I just uh, want us to have that kind of heart where we become Psalm 100, which is what we studied in our Sunday school today. Um, I ask you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, which is on page 329 in the Pew Bible, when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you can go to verse 1, put your finger there, and we'll pick up there in just a minute. I recently, I've shared this with a few, I've recently went to the dentist. They are seeking to determine my particular issue. They were trying at this situation. I went to a dentist and then I went to an endodontist, which means that things aren't really looking good for at least one of my teeth, if not more. They say I've got a couple of cracks and I'm dealing with things like that. But one of the things they wanted to determine was if I needed a root canal. One of the ways they decide if you're going to need a root canal or not, they get something that's this super, super cold stuff. And they put it on the tip of something. And then they touch your tooth. And they say something like, when you feel cold, raise your hand. And when you feel that cold go away, you put your hand down. I don't like that. (laughs) But they put it, I raised my hand, they pulled it off, it subsided, I put my hand down. And they're trying to determine what your nerves are doing, and I don't technologically know and endodontically know and understand what all they're doing. But when they got done, I'm a little bit of an overachiever. I said, well, how'd I do? She started out like this. This is my local dentist that I've known for a long time. She said, well, for a man your age, and I didn't hear another word. Actually, I did hear what she said. She said, well, for a man your age, you did fairly well. And I go, ouch. You see, yes, I came to First Baptist. It's been 25 years already that I've been here. I came to First Baptist 25 years ago as a young husband and a young father, and now I have become a man my age. Her point, her point was that there are certain expectations that we have about things that happen in our lives that have to do with many factors, and the way that my nerves were working in my teeth as they were doing this test, one of those factors came into effect that as you get older, the results change slightly. Shift a few days later, Angela and I were in Target. And as we were checking out, this young cashier looked at my extremely young and beautiful wife, and she said, Angela, where are you? There she is. She said, you remind me of my grandmother. (laughs) Now listen. A man my age and a woman reminder of her grandmother, 
That's a double ouch week. And on the way out to the car, I said, well, I think for a woman your age, you're holding up fairly well. And then, not being smart enough to be quiet, I said her grandmother must be quite a knockout. It, I wasn't in trouble. It was the cashier that was in trouble, so it didn't help any. As I was studying, it made me think of the term late bloomer. I don't know why, but a late bloomer is defined as a person whose talents or capabilities are not visible to others until later than usual. Again, an expectation or assumption that people make. When in reality, each person matures and grows and becomes at their own specific and particular rate. Well, let me ask you this question. Think about how long you've been a Christian. It might have been many, many, many years, or it could have been just a very few weeks. Are you spiritually mature for a Christian your age? You see, God doesn't waste anything in our lives, and he started channeling me into Scripture. Perhaps you're right where you need to be scripturally, spiritually mature, or perhaps you're just a late bloomer where you're not quite where you need to be for someone who's been a Christian as long as you've been a Christian. Well, let me tell you this. God has plans for you regardless, regardless of your age. Amen? All right. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read together from 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to pick up in verse 1. I'm going to read through 13. So, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king under, among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If, Samuel, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, Thus there remains yet the youngest, and he, there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. 
So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Keep your scripture open. We're going to walk back through this. You may be seated. This scripture introduces David to the scriptural scene and to the historical scene. Prior to this scripture, Saul has been unfaithful to God and in the position that he is in, and God is choosing or has chosen another king for his people. And God sends the prophet Samuel to Bethlehem, specifically to the home of Jesse and his sons. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, that Samuel clearly hears what God wants him to do. Church, can I just remind you that God never desires to withhold his plans and his purposes from his people. Recall two weeks ago, God spoke to Philip and told Philip exactly what to do. Time and time and time and time again in Scripture, God knows how to speak to us. God knows what his plans and purposes are for us, and it is God's desire that we know them And it's just a great reminder because that tells me that God has a desire for you as well to tell you what he wants you to do. Verse three, God says to Samuel, I will show you what you shall do. You will anoint for me the one I name to you. God has a specific person in mind. God did not say, go to Bethlehem and find the king. God said, go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse's house, and while you're there, I will tell you who. Do you know that by faith, God always causes us to take steps before we fully know what God's full plan is? Always. Never in Scripture does God give you the whole story and go, what do you think about that? He calls you to take a step, a second or third step, and you don't really know the full step until you look back and you go, Oh, I see how it all came together now. That's how God's purpose will be unfolded in your life. And because God wants to reveal his purpose and his plans to you, one of the things that I need to encourage you with is you need to walk by faith. You're going to have to take a step or two without the certainty of knowing where those steps or two are going to lead you. God is very personal. He had a specific person in mind to be the next king of Israel. And each of us, you are a hand-created, one-of-a-kind masterpiece of God. In God's eyes, he made you in his image. And he has purposes for you that will just blow you away. You see, God knows David already already knows what he wants to do in David's life, through David's life, before David is even aware of God's purposes and his plans. This statement's true for you as well. If you're a note taker, you're going to want to write down Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Catch this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
beforehand that we should walk in them. God already has good works planned for you in your life for him. Isn't that cool? Verse five, Samuel and Jesse and his sons, they get together and, and they pass through. And based on how I read scripture, they pass through from the oldest son to the youngest son. And so Eliab, verse six, comes first. He's the oldest. And Samuel jumps to a conclusion. Surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. Samuel says, this must be the one. And God says, no, Samuel, that's not the one. And then God challenges Samuel. You heard it when we read it. Says, Samuel, don't look on appearance. Don't look at physical stature. Verse 7, Scripture says, the Lord does not see as man sees. How do you see people? See, we typically see people as tall or short. We see the color of their skin. We see their actions. We see a lot of things about them. God doesn't see us that way. God looks at us and he says, that's somebody I made that I love, that I have a purpose and a plan for, that I'm going to call them to live by faith. That's how God sees us. But we, we don't see things as God sees. We write people off a long time before, or we write them off a long time afterwards. A man my age, I could run circles around her. She's lucky I didn't say something about her. Because that's what we do, right? You come after me, I come after you. <laughs> Problem is, is she didn't think she was coming after me. She was just stating a fact. But God, God says, that's not the way I see people. Verse 7 says, the Lord looks at the heart. Can I tell you what God is looking for when he looks at you today? He is looking for a yielded heart. He's not looking for talent. He's not looking for speed. He's not looking for prowess. He's not looking for any of these things. He's looking for a heart that is yielded to him and says, Lord, whatever you want. Lord, whatever your plan is, Lord, that's what God's looking for. If you want to know God's plan for your life, number one, you're going to have to walk by faith. Number two, you're going to have to yield your heart. You're going to have to give it to him, all of it. Is your heart yielded to him? Or is God just a compartment in your life that you are very faithful with from time to time, but it's not a heart fully yielded to him? So this process continues. Eliab, that's not the one. Verse 8, Abinadab, nope. Verse 9, Shama, nope. Verse 10, it doesn't say it this way, but son 4, not the one. Son 5, not the one. Son 6, not the one. Son 7, not the one. Verse 10, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Jesse has brought forward seven in order of the best sons. And God says, those aren't the ones. And Samuel asks a really good question. Because, see, think about this question. Let's talk about it before we even answer it. But Samuel asked a question of God. His question is, Jesse, do you have any more sons? What a great question that is. Because, see, with us, we tend to go, okay, I missed something. 
Okay, God, you were unclear. Okay, God, you maybe don't have a purpose. Maybe you're thinking this over. Maybe you're trying to figure this out on the fly. Samuel doesn't know that about God. He trusts God, and he said, there's got to be another son. What a great question. And if we're not careful, we'll just blow right through that as if that's not a life-changing question, but it is because it says the faith that Samuel has in God because, see, Samuel has walked in faith. Samuel has yielded his heart to God. And now Samuel trusts God to the point that even though he's seen all the sons and it looks like a total bust, Samuel goes, is this all of them? And then Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest. There he is keeping the sheep. And I want to stop. This is a big moment for us, scripturally speaking. The prophet of God enters town. The prophet of God is sent by God to anoint the king. The prophet of God who walks into town startles the leadership and the people of the town. Remember it said back in verse three or four, he said, do you come peaceably? See, this was a big moment when you walk into town this way. This prophet who carried so much weight walked into town and he calls Jesse and says, get all your sons together. And now we find out that he left one behind. Jesse obviously did not feel it was important to have David there. Perhaps Jesse did not want David there. Note, Jesse calls him in verse 11, the youngest. Now, if you go back and study God's word in Hebrew, and I'm not a good Hebrew scholar, but I can go back and dig and study just a little bit. And and I've gone through a Bible study with some deacons in the room, and they're going to hear this term for the second time while you're hearing it for the first time while I've been studying it for a long time. In the Hebrew, the word for yet the youngest is hakaton. Hakaton. The word has various meanings, and it's used in various ways in Scripture, not just here, but many places in Scripture, and it can mean the youngest, the least. It can mean insignificant. It can mean unimportant. This is a major point for you right this moment. Hakaton. Jesse looks at David and calls him insignificant, unimportant. In the NFL, they have a draft every year. Now, I didn't do the number calculation, but it's 260-something. But they have this draft pick that they call Mr. Irrelevant. That's the title. Mr. Irrelevant. That means he is the last draft pick of the last team, and then the draft is over. And you get this nickname, Mr. Irrelevant. It's a very interesting thing to follow up on. I made some notes here. The most, I did some research, the most well-known Mr. Irrelevant is a guy that goes by the name of Ryan Suckup. He went to the University of South Carolina, and he was the kicker for the Titans 
for a number of years. And he won a Super Bowl ring with Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. And you're going, Jeff, I'm not a football fan. That means nothing to me. The point is, is he went from being Mr. Irrelevant to champion. Church, that is important for you to understand. And then I started thinking, that's not Mr. Irrelevant. That's a crazy name. That's a name they gave to the last pick in the draft. But do you know that there are over 500 players in the NFL today that didn't get drafted at all? They are less than irrelevant. And I said, well, let me just do some research on the most famous undrafted person. There's a lot of undrafted people that have made it well, but the most famous undrafted person is probably Kurt Warner, Super Bowl champion, Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner, who wanted to play football, Kurt Warner, that in 1994 was bagging groceries at a store in Iowa when an upstart football league called the Arena League, some wouldn't even call it football, and he played two years there, and he grabbed the attention of a team called the St. Louis Rams. And then he started a career. When he almost gave up, he started a career and became Super Bowl champion, MVP, got one of the highest passing yardage games in the Super Bowl ever. Kurt Warner, Hall of Fame, Kurt Warner, undrafted. He wasn't even relevant. Hall of Fame. So then I kept digging, and you're going, Jeff, this football stuff's really missing me. Well, let me just finish, because it gets gooder, Bert, okay? Do you know that since the NFL began, there have been over 26,000 players put on an NFL uniform? And of those over 26,000 players that have put on an NFL uniform, 346 of them have made the Hall of Fame, have been recognized as the best of the best. And of those 346, which makes up like 1.3% of the Hall of Fame is made up of people that have played football. Well, 100% of the Hall of Fame is made of people who play football. Said that all bad. But of all the people that have ever played in football, 1.3% have made the Hall of Fame. 15, 15 people in the history of the NFL have been undrafted to the Hall of Fame, 15. That is one half of one-tenth of one percent of the players. That's the same thing as saying that the Hall of Fame is made up of 99.995% of people that were drafted. And then there's 15 people that have made it, that went undrafted. Made me think about Hebrews 11, I, I read a book this week, Tony Evans, Heroes of the Kingdom, and he's walking through Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. And you know what? That is the shadiest group of people you'll ever see. That's not the drafted, that's not the number one draft pick people. These are the people that God said, I see you, I see you, I can use you. Go and read it. 
The fact that somebody can go from irrelevant to Super Bowl champion, that should matter to you and what God may have in store for you. The fact that somebody can go from undrafted to the Hall of Fame, while that may not touch you football-wise, it must touch you opportunity-wise for a God who knows you, loves you, and has a purpose and a plan for you. Hakatan. Jesse felt that David was insignificant, was unimportant. Didn't even call him to be in attendance when the prophet came to town. Have you ever allowed what somebody else thinks of you to impact how you think of you? Have you ever allowed your experiences, your failures, your missed opportunities to diminish how you think of you? Most importantly, have you ever allowed all of those things that can riddle us, have you ever allowed them to separate you from God? The God who knows you, created you, has a purpose for you, and has good work set aside for you to do. Have you ever felt like Hakatan? Have you ever felt insignificant or unimportant? That God tells Samuel that David, this Hakatan, he's the one right there. He's the one. He is important because he's important to me. He is significant because he's significant to me. There are things for him to do because I've created them. I have placed him right where he is. He's important. Church, don't miss this point. This is a cool story about David, but this is a cooler story about you, about what God wants you. Verse 11, Samuel says, so you got one in the field. Bring him here. We're not even going to sit down until he's here. Verse 12, David arrives, the Hakatan, the youngest. Verse 12 says, the Lord says, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. God calls David the one, the one that God had preordained to be king. Jesse sees a young child, a Hakaton, a keeper of sheep, and God sees a king. Can I tell you that if you are a child of God today, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your failure, he doesn't see your experiences, he looks at you and he sees a king or queen, heir of the throne of God. Amen? Amen. But we don't see ourselves that way. And we certainly don't view other people that way. And we should. Because when we see things differently than how God sees them, we are wrong. Even when it's about ourselves. Samuel anoints David in that moment. And look what happens. Verse 13. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that would be David, from that 
day forward. The Spirit of God came on David, and the Spirit of God stayed on David. Recall the day that you were saved. The day that you truly know that you accepted Jesus as your Savior. And on that day, you saw a sinner in need of forgiveness. And when you accepted Jesus, God saw a perfect king. And as king, he has preordained purposes for you. If you will, but see it. Now, we leave our scripture right here, and it says that Samuel leaves, and in many ways, life goes back to normal, and in some ways, it does not. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is sent to check on his brothers, the three oldest are told us by name, that are in Saul's army. David arrives, and he walks into the scene where Goliath is, threatening God's people. And David begins to overhear the fear and the challenges, and he begins to overhear what the king will do for the one who will go and fight Goliath if he wins. And David is drawn to this battle. Now, you don't have to look there, but let me read in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 26 to 33. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab, that's the oldest brother's, anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep of yours? Eliab is still looking at David as Hakatan. You don't believe. You don't deserve to be here. You're just a little shepherd. I know your pride, picking up in verse 28, and insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And listen, this tells you what's in David's heart. He said, and David said, what have I done now? Have you ever felt that way? That no matter what you try to do, it's never enough. What have I done now? That's how David feels. What have I done now? He goes on to say, because in their cause, shouldn't somebody be standing for this? In their cause? The average person is not David. The average person at this time doesn't have the Spirit of God placed upon them. And so when they go, you little shepherd, get out of here, we walk away. David doesn't walk away. David goes and talks to somebody else. It says, then he turned from him toward another, verse 30, and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did, which means they're going, hey, little shepherd boy, this is not your battle. Verse 31, now when the words were spoken to David were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. That's King Saul sent for David. He heard the words of the brash young Hakatan. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight for him, for you are a youth. Everybody's looking at David going, you're Hakatan. You can't do this. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from the mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living 
God. David recounts to King Saul. He says, I've been in battles before. I fought lions. I fought bears. And how God had delivered him. Notice David said, and God brought me through. But perhaps you missed one of the most important words David said right here. Look at verse 34 if you're with me in 1734. I'll say it again. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's flock. Used to. That's another way of saying he doesn't anymore. Used to be a shepherd. Used to. The Spirit of God, we said in verse 13, came upon David and anointed him the next king. And God had continued to move and work in David's life. He began to reshape this heart of a Hakatan into a king. And now he's ready to rise up. David was beginning to understand through the work of God in his life, that he was not insignificant, that he was not unimportant, that he was not Hakatan. See, that's a lie from Satan, that you are not able. And over and over again in this story, David's been put down, put down, put down, put down. You can't, you can't, you can't. And the thing about it is, is if we could have one-on-one conversations, you're facing a lot of that in your life right now as well. And if we're not careful, we'll believe it and we'll back off and we'll not do what God has purposed for us to do. I could share with you about God using a man named Moses who was a murderer. I could tell you about Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press, hiding where the angel of God said for a man hiding in fear, said, hello, warrior. How God sees us and how we see us so many times are different. I could share with you about Esther and a person put in position for a specific time. I could remind you of the shepherds abiding in the fields at night that God said, you are not insignificant. I'm telling you the news first. I could share with you about a man possessed with a legion of demons who went on after meeting Jesus to share the gospel in 10 cities. I could encourage you by a woman with too many husbands and a bad reputation meeting Jesus by a well and how she brought the gospel to her hometown. I could tell you about Ruth, Rahab, Zacchaeus, Peter, James, John, I could tell you about a carpenter who raised the Son of God in this world. I could tell you about a guy named Stephen or about a guy named Saul who God turned into a guy named Paul. All of them, every single one of them, Hakatan. By this world's standards, insignificant unimportant. But can I tell you that by God's standards, every single one, a king. This morning, you have a choice to make. 
Who are you? Are you going to be defined by what other people say? Are you going to be defined by what you even say? Or will you allow yourself to be defined by what the God of the universe who made you and loves you has purpose for you in life? Because I could tell you about person after person after person. But I just want to remind you of one final person. That's you. God has a purpose for you. God has a plan for you. He's got good work set aside that he wants you to do. Regardless of where you've been, of what you've been told, what you've done, what you might be doing, regardless of where you are right now, God sees a king if you know Jesus. God sees someone for whom he always loved and always has had a purpose. To you, I mean, to God, you are important. You are significant. Amen? This morning, you have a choice. Who are you? I'll tell you, Scripture says that you are not Hakatan. Scripture says that you are important to the God of all creation. Amen? Notice that people such as David who begin to understand their value in the eyes of God live different lives. Church, we must live different lives. Done are the days of insignificance and unimportance. Here, scripturally, are the days of value and purpose that God has for you. Satan right now is going, no, God can't use me. He can use you, Jeff. He might be able to use somebody else. No, I'm here to tell you that God's word says that he can use you. And I don't care what you is in this room. I don't care anything. Does, God does it because he's got the answer and it's through Jesus. Church, what's your answer? Who are you? Today can be the day that you used to be somebody else and you begin to be what God has always purposed for you to be. Amen.